People really seem to love underdog stories. The underdog story, the story of someone who overcomes insurmountable odds, somebody who has a victory that really should not have been had. The underdog story is one of the most popular narratives in movies, books, and even our favorite stories of truth, of history throughout the world. Uh, One of the ways that this is most keenly seen is especially in the sports world. In the sports world, people love the underdog story. Every March, there's what's called March Madness. Now, I'm not personally a huge basketball fan, but even I like to watch March Madness. It's the playoff tournament for the NCAA, for the college teams. And one of the main reasons why people love March Madness so much is because every year we're guaranteed at least one or two games where some school you've never heard of beats this amazing team that's filled with accolades and trophies. We love the underdog story, and the underdogs are almost always rooted for. I think we also see this as we teach America's own history. America, the story of America, is very much an underdog story of the greatest military force on earth, England losing to a bunch of ragtag militiamen, right? We love our underdog story. There's just something so compelling about them. You could almost argue that we love them to a fault. And the reason I say that is because one of the curses of American culture and society right now is the curse of victimology or victimhood. Everybody wants to portray them and their group that they belong to as the victims of the story. There is this ironic power in being the victim. And why is that? Because we have such a love for underdog stories, we see the victims as the good guys, right? The powerful guys are the bad guys. The ones who are supposed to win are the bad guys. We root for the victims. We root for the weak and for the oppressed. And so we love the underdog story. And so we always want to present ourselves as the underdog. Well, one of the reasons, in my opinion, why the underdog story has become so important to human beings, so entertaining, is because of our text this morning. We are about to embark on what I would consider the greatest underdog story of all time. The archetype underdog stories for all underdog stories. And that is, as we continue through 1 Samuel, we are finally at the famous story of David and Goliath. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17, please? David and Goliath, this is easily one of the most well-known Bible stories in all of the world. As a matter of fact, it's so popular and so well-known, 1 Samuel 17 simultaneously is probably one of the most abused passages in all of the Bible. It's amazing how many sermons every year are preached on 1 Samuel 17, and it's amazing the ways that this story can be twisted and crafted and manipulated. Now, it is a very long chapter. It's actually quite a long story, and so we are going to embark over three weeks to cover the story of David versus Goliath. And we essentially are going to see that the new king that God has secretly anointed last week is going to vindicate God's decision in 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you would begin with me at the beginning, even though we're not covering the whole chapter today, what we are covering is still quite long, so we're going to read it in chunks as we go. So let's begin in verse 1, if you would follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. (laughs) 
Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkot and Azekah, in Ephestamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let us stop there. Yet again, the Philistines and Israel have gathered for war. By my count, I think this is their third time in 1 Samuel. The Philistines and Israel are back at it again. But this time, the narrative is very different than the other times. Because what has happened here, as these armies have encamped in the valley of Elah, which, by the way, we know with very great historical accuracy where this battle took place today. It's, it's really quite neat. As they have gathered together something new that we have not seen happen yet, and a single champion is brought forth. And he initiates a kind of warfare that actually is more popular than you might think throughout world history. It's a unique kind of warfare that helps keep more people alive, and that is, let's just do a one-on-one, -on -one, your best versus our best, and we represent the army, so whoever wins, wins the battle. And so Goliath of Gath, a city only about five miles from this battle location, comes out for the Philistines, and he taunts and he jeers the ranks of Israel. Now, I would submit to you, at the risk of maybe sounding a little scandalous, that there's not a whole lot of important theological meat in the text that we just read. But the story is meticulously building itself up. The author really wants to build up this underdog story. And so a great amount of detail is given in this text just to tell us the kind of monster of a man that Goliath is. We are told his height... And since we don't measure it in that way, his height comes out to anywhere between 9 feet to 10 and a half feet tall. A cubit was measured from the tip of a person's finger, of a man's finger, to his elbow. But as you can imagine, my cubit is a lot smaller than Elder Jesse's cubit. And so there wasn't really a standard cubit. It ranged anywhere from 17 inches to 20 inches. So, and we know a span is about 6 inches. So Goliath's height comes anywhere between 9 and 10 feet tall. He's Huge. And by the way, this is not the first time we've seen a giant in the Old Testament. As the spies went through the land of Canaan, they saw many giants, and this is what scared them. I even speculate, don't know this for sure, but I speculate there was even a supernatural element to his size because we see that in Genesis, but I won't go there. I think there was a, I don't think this was entirely natural. 
For a person to be 10 feet tall and still have a big enough heart to pump blood through his body and still be a warrior of this kind. I think there was something supernatural. But regardless, however you interpret it, we have a huge man. Huge by today's standards, and their standards were even shorter than our standards. The average man back then, uh, historians believe, was probably roughly around 5'5", five, 5'6". Five, five, so 9 feet tall, 10 feet tall is quite large. And we know that he knows how to use his size. He's not just this tall, lanky guy. He knows how to throw his weight around. And how do we know that? Because he's equipped with thick, heavy armor. His shield of coat comes out to 125 pounds. He's walking around the Middle Eastern desert fighting fights with armor that's about the size of a small woman on his body. And that doesn't count his helmet and his shin guards and his heavy sword and his heavy javelin. And his javelin is intimidating. It talks about it being like a weaver's beam. What that means is that what we think is that these javelins, or spears as it calls it, they would have this special rope system attached, like a rope tied to the middle of it, and this gave an extra whip so this thing could really fly. This is a man, the text is going out of its way to present to us a gargantuan man. This is an unwinnable fight. His armor is impenetrable. His strength is insurmountable. His size is intimidating. His shield alone, probably. How are you going to get around a shield equipped to fit that man? What is the text trying to tell us? The text is trying to communicate to us, in a one-on-one -on -one fight, this is unwinnable. This is an unwinnable fight. And Goliath knows it. And that's why he's cocky. And that's why he's walking around. I defy you. I challenge you. Why have you even showed up today? Bring me my champion. Goliath is going to win, and Israel knows it. The text tells us in verse 11 that Israel is frightened, and it tells us not just that Israel was frightened, but it specifies that Saul was frightened. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Why do you think Saul is singled out here? Well, certainly, he's the leader of the army, he's the king. But I want you to recall, if you can remember, why did Israel want a king so bad? God told them, we saw this in a few chapters ago, God told them, I don't want to give you a king, but they demanded, no, we want a king. Why did they want a king so bad? What was their main reason? So that he could lead us in war. Here's the man who's supposed to lead them in war. And let's also keep in mind one other thing. What was it that about Saul that made him so appealing, that everyone was so excited to, for him to be king? He was their Goliath. Now, he's not as big as Goliath. But none the, nonetheless, if you're going to pick anyone from the ranks of Israel who stands a chance, it ought to be Saul. Saul is the one who stood head and shoulders above the rest of Israel. He's Israel's Goliath. He's Israel's champion. And he's cowering. And he's afraid. So let's read about our true champion then. Verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of these three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and the next to him Abinadab, and the third Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. 
And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So God has providentially taken his secretly anointed king and providentially brought him to a battle he doesn't belong to. We know, we saw from last week that David has been enlisted in Saul's army, but David goes back and forth between, or not Saul's army, forgive me, Saul's service, but he goes back and forth. Sometimes he serves Saul, sometimes he serves his father. And at this time, he's been serving his father. Forty days have passed. And so clearly, I mean, Saul is occupied. He's probably not thinking much about David right now. And David gets this commission from his dad. Why don't you go and bring food to your three oldest brothers who have been drafted? Not only because I want them to be served, but I want to know if they're even still alive. Remember, they didn't have cell phones or satellite phones or emails. So for 40 days, I don't know if my sons are even alive. So David is going to go check in for dad. So he leaves his sheep with a, with a hired hand. He takes a servant with him and they take supplies for his brothers and for the commander of his army. And as he gets there, we see something interesting. What we see is that the Israel has rejected Goliath's terms. Israel is not interested in a mono mono fight with Goliath. We're not losing that. So they begin these kind of small strategic battles where they send out camps. And so it's not like Braveheart, you know, where they all just scream and clash, right? It's a little bit more strategic than that. But what's happening is David shows up to bring food for his brothers. He's seeing a handful of things happening. He's hearing the taunts from Goliath. He's seeing this man defy Israel, defy the armies, and he's hearing the reports of the men who go out for battle but then retreat and cower because once they get an up-close view of Goliath, he's even scarier than he was from up the hill. So Goliath is basically chasing out whole armies. And David randomly shows up with bread and cheese. And he hears these taunts. And he sees the fear. And this is where I would commit to you, truly is where the theology comes into play. Our sermon this morning really is going to focus on verses 25 through 27. So read those with me, and then we will see what the Lord has for us this morning. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. So David hears that Saul is so much, not only is Saul not willing to fight Goliath, but he's bribing at this point. You can marry one of my daughters, which gives you now a royal line. You can come into the royal line, and I won't tax your father's household. 
You won't pay taxes and you'll marry into my family if you, someone will just go kill this reproach from Israel. So all the men are saying, and apparently Goliath is so intimidating, it's still not worth it. So David shows up and David is confused. Wait a minute, we're offering a bribe? Why don't you just go kill him? This cocky little spirit. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who would dare defy the armies of the living God? Just go kill him. David is the heart of our text this morning. We see some very important theological insight as David shows up to the battle. Here's why. I think verse 26 especially, we are going to really hone in on 26. And here's why I say that. There's a word that's been repeated in chapter 17. It's repeated a total of six times. Four times in the section we've just read. Twice just in verse 26. There's an important word that's coming up, coming up, coming up. And in your Bible, it's the same word that you see anytime the word defy or reproach or something along those lines is used. So what has the text been emphasizing to this point? The defiance of the uncircumcised Philistine. He is mocking Israel and, his, and her God. He is challenging and insulting Israel and her God. That is what the text is focusing in on here. And David sees this. David is keenly aware of this. What do I mean by that? David knows that this is not just machismo. In other words, this is not just uh, two men loaded with testosterone who want to fight. This fight is religious in nature. This is a religious fight. This is not just a carnal fight. This is a religious fight. Goliath has not just stepped onto the battlefield to win. He stepped on the battlefield to mock and humiliate Yahweh. This is the God of the Philistines versus the God of Yahweh. And as of right now, the representatives of the Philistines are the courageous ones. And it's God's people cowering. And David shows up and he sees the religious nature of this battle. And that's what provokes him. He's not angry that they're just cowering over some soldier. They're angry because this is a religious fight. Why do I say that? Well, because notice David's language. First and foremost, as we see in the text, before we get to some of David's key words, I want us to see that as Goliath challenges the armies of Yahweh, we see implied in this text what is made very clear in the New Testament, that God so closely identifies with his people that an attack on God's people is an attack on God. An attack on God's people is an attack on God. Where do we see this so explicitly in the New Testament? In many places, but my favorite place is when, in the book of Acts, when Saul is converted to the Apostle Paul. What does Jesus say when Jesus appears to Saul in his vision? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But guess who Saul was not persecuting? Jesus. Jesus wasn't around. He ascended to heaven a long time ago. Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting Christians. And yet Jesus said to persecute them is to persecute me. We see the same thing in Jesus' famous sermon, Matthew 24, the end of it. What you do unto the least of these, you have done unto me. 
He so closely identifies with these people that to attack them is to attack him. Goliath is attacking God. He's mocking God. He's insulting Yahweh. And this is what provokes David. And we know that by the language that David uses. How does David describe what's happening in verse 26? After he asks, what will be done for the man who takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? What does circumcision have to do with battle? Are you more intimidated by circumcised soldiers than uncircumcised soldiers? That has nothing to do with this. Yet for some reason it's important to David. Why is it important to David? Because what does his uncircumcision represent? His covenant status. He is not part of the covenant of Israel. And what does it mean to be outside the covenant status? It means to be an enemy of God. So this is what's happening as we saw that long portion talking about Goliath's stature and his size and his bronze and his medals. We're seeing Goliath the way Israel was seeing Goliath. And they were marveling at his strength and his size and his power. But now in verse 26, we're seeing Goliath the way David sees Goliath. And while everyone else is fixated on his armor, David is fixated on his circumcision or his lack of it. David says, you guys are looking at the bronze and the helmets and all I see is an uncircumcised man, a.k.a. an enemy of God. So here's what David's noticing. Two things. Number one, this is a religious taunt. This is a religious attack. And number two, who's the real underdog here? If you look at it from a worldly perspective, the nine-foot guy with the impenetrable armor and the history of fighting experience, yeah, he's the one who's got the edge. But if you look at it through covenant lenses, we've got one guy who's got a false god on his side and another army who's got the true God on their side. Who's the underdog? Goliath. He doesn't stand a chance. If God is for us, who can be against us? He doesn't stand a chance. David sees that. We also see that not just in this expression of circumcision, but notice what else David goes on to say. He has to double down on this. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of what? The living God. Goliath is not just defying the armies of God. He's not doing that. He's defying the armies of the living God. Singular. The living. There's only one God who's actually alive and it's not Goliath's. Goliath has a God on his side and his God is dumb, deaf, dead, and mute. Our God's alive. So I ask again, would somebody go kill this man? Where is David's rage coming from? Where is his cockiness coming from? Where is this confidence coming from? It's coming from seeing this spiritually. This man is an enemy of God. We are the friends of God. Let's go get him. David recognizes that this is a spiritual fight. And David is provoked to fight that fight. And so here's what I want us to focus in. Here's, here's how I want us to bring this all together. I think what verse 26, I think it's the key to the portion that we've read today. And I think what verse 26 is trying to show us, trying to, to, to put on a display for us is David's zeal 
for the Lord. David's been provoked. His jealousy for the glory and the fame of God is rising up from within him. He is jealous that God's name would be honored properly and he has been provoked by these taunts. Why? Because he has a zeal for the glory of the Lord. What do we learn? The first thing we learn in 1 Samuel 17, what do we learn? We learn about the importance of being men and women who have a zeal for the glory of God. So if that's what you're looking for, like what is the main takeaway of the sermon? What, what can I go home and tell my friends and tell my neighbors, this is what I learned in church today. The thesis is this, we must be zealous for the glory of God and the glory of his people, his church. We must be zealous for the glory of God and his church. In other words, I rhetorically ask, what excuse do we have to lack David's zeal for the glory of the Lord? We must cultivate a zeal for the Lord and for his people. God is worthy of zealous disciples. Now let's take a step back. What is zeal? The dictionary definition is an enthusiastic devotion to a cause, ideal, or goal. I like to describe it more simply as a passionate pursuit. If you have zeal for something, you have a passionate pursuit of it. If you have a zeal for, for the Lord, then you passionately pursue the Lord. If you have a zeal for the glory of the Lord, then you passionately pursue His glory. It's a passionate pursuit. But I would argue that the heart and soul of zeal is jealousy. In this text, we are being called to be a jealous people. That might sound scandalous, because typically when we use the word jealous, we use it with negative connotations. And oftentimes it is. Oftentimes, when we as Christians and we as people feel jealousy, it's usually a sin. Thou shalt not covet. We are usually coveting. We're jealous for something we shouldn't be jealous of. Jealousy can be a sin, but jealousy is not in and of itself sinful. And we know this because the Bible over and over and over again refers to Yahweh as a jealous God. He himself is jealous. So jealousy is not sinful. It depends on what you're jealous of. And what we learn from David is the glory and fame of the Lord is something we should be jealous for. The way you feel when your loved one cheats on you and betrays you, that's how you should feel when people, when uncircumcised Philistines defy the glory of the wonderful God. This is adultery. David has jealousy for the glory of the Lord. Jealousy for the God's glory is our desire that his glory should shine forth without opposition. To be jealous for the glory of the Lord is to desire that his glory would rightly shine forth without opposition. David was jealous for God's glory, so he could not stand to see God publicly mocked and attacked without repercussions. J David is jealous for the glory of God, and he's jealous for the reputation of God's people. Why are we the cowards? Why are the Philistines the brave ones? Why are we the cowards? We're God's people. We are called to be zealous disciples. So what does that look like? None of us are David, right? Uh, there's not uncircumcised Philistines lined up outside our door wanting to fight with us right now. Hallelujah. Glory to God. So since you don't have a Goliath in your life that you're supposed to kill, 
Since you're not fighting in war, what does David's zeal, what does it look like applied to your life? If you were to take David's zeal and implant it into your heart, what would grow? Well, here are some of the things that I've listed. I think the most obvious application from this particular text is apologetics. What is apologetics? It comes from the Greek word apologia, to defend. Apologetics is simply when you defend the truth of the Christian faith. When people dare to mock our God and say he is not, or he is not like this, that should provoke us. That should bother us. For God to be publicly dishonored, for God to be publicly slandered and lied about, that is the equivalent of an uncircumcised Philistine defying Yahweh. And it should provoke us to righteous anger and jealousy. And so one of the ways zeal manifests in our life is apologetics. That we would defend the truth of the Christian faith. That we would have the desire to have discerning minds, to be able to discern truth from error. Now, I am not calling all of you to become professional apologists. We in 21st century America have sort of made apologists like a new office, if you will. It's not a biblical office, but we've kind of created that. So I'm not telling you the only way to have a zeal for God is to go start a YouTube channel and to start debating people and to do that. But I think the more practical way that this manifests in your life is, is on a very simple level, you should be bothered by false theology. That, that, sh that should bother you. Now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, we have a triage Right? One of the ways you could take this principle and run with it and really embarrass the glory of the Lord is to treat every small, minor theological detail as if an uncircumcised Philistine is defying Yahweh. There are some differences in theology that, that matter, but aren't as important as others. But speaking not so specifically, but on a general scope, we need to be jealous that God is represented truthfully in his glory, and so it should bother us when that's not happening. And I say this because, let's just be honest with the facts, there are many circles of evangelicalism today where there is little tolerance for caring deeply about theology. You can be mocked and shamed for being a person that desires to know God better. I'm told you need to just focus more on evangelism and the gospel and not get lost in all those fine details. I'm too jealous for the glory of the Lord for that. We should care about theology. One of John Calvin's most favorite, famous quotes, the, the one quote that even people who hate John Calvin love and have memorized is this, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. Your dog knows better than to let someone publicly threaten and mock you. David knows better than to let someone publicly threaten and mock God. I will not be a coward. I care too much about the truth and glory of the Lord. Apologetics is how zeal manifests. But very, very related to our first manifestation, apologetics, is another one, evangelism. It's sort of the other side of the coin. Apologetics is sort of the defensive posture, while evangelism is more of the offensive posture. 
If we care about the glory of the Lord and we really believe that the Lord is glorious and majestic and wonderful, then our zeal should cause us to want everyone to see that and to proclaim it. People who are truly zealous for the glory of the Lord will never rest, will never stop, will never be content as long as they know there is even one heart in all the city of Roswell that does not proclaim the goodness and majesty of our God. He deserves full glorification. By the way, that's why he made things so beautiful. That's why when you look at the Hubble Space Telescope pictures and marvel, it's because God built creation to be zealous for his glory. Creation itself, David tells us, proclaims the majesty of God. All of creation is constantly paying homage to the glory of the Lord. And what we do in evangelism is we take uncircumcised Philistines and we call them to recognize and bow their knee and proclaim with the stars, with the mountains, with the rivers, with the trees, the glory of the Lord. Zealous Christians are zealous to see their entire community see and understand and experience God's glory. So if you're anything like me, which is a really poor evangelist, that's what I am. I, let me just confess my sin. I have not led the church well in this area. I have not led us well in this area. And you want to know what that reflects in my heart? I don't have enough zeal for God's glory. You know what? I, I recognize God's glory, and I've got a great family right here who recognize God's glory, and you know what? That's enough for me. That's not enough for God. Our city is filled with uncircumcised Philistines who defy Yahweh. It's our job to change that, or at least to try to change that. Zealous Christians defend the truth of God. Zealous Christians evangelize, proclaim his works. And another one, this one's a little bit harsher, but it's very true. Another manifestation of zeal for the glory of the Lord is church discipline. Why do we kick unrepentant sinners out of church? God has given a very gracious, merciful process. If you're not a part of our church and haven't learned at least what we believe about church discipline, let me assure you, our church does not practice where you sin once and we kick you out. It's not how church discipline works. There's a very gracious process. If someone goes through the process of church discipline all the way up to the end, what that means is that they have been confronted over their sin multiple times and they obstinately, stubbornly refuse to stop. What do we do with those people? The scriptures are very clear. Expel them from your midst. They are not one of you. Why do we do that? I would submit to you there's multiple reasons for the wisdom of that, multiple. But the one relevant to our text today is that we cannot allow an, an, an unrepentant sinner to represent Christ in his church. I love the way David described this uncircumcised Philistine as a reproach to Israel. That's what unrepentant sinners are who claim the name of Christ. They go around to an unbelieving world and say, hey, I'm a Christian. I represent Jesus Christ. I represent all those Christians over at Redeemer Christian Fellowship. And then they live in horribly sinful lifestyles. What do they do? They are defaming the glory of the Lord and they are defaming the reputation of our church. So it's not pride. It's not meanness. It's not arrogance. But we care too much about Jesus' public reputation and too much about his church's public reputation to just let them slide because we don't want the confrontation. When we are out in public, we represent Christ in his church. 
And Christ is glorious, and his church is glorious, and we need to live in ways that communicate and show that's the truth. And when we don't do that, and we obstinately refuse to do that, we need to be able to tell the world, hey, that guy who calls himself a Christian, just so you know, none of the churches here accept him. He does not belong to us. He does not belong to Christ. We are too zealous for the glory of the Lord to let someone be a reproach on the church. Church discipline ultimately boils down to a zeal for the glory of God, a zeal for the glory of God's church. Uh, The last two I thought of, I'll go by quickly. This one is kind of obvious. Holiness. If you have a true zeal for the Lord, then you'll want to obey him. You'll want to please him. 1 John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Every time we sin, every time that I sin, what I'm ultimately doing is telling God, your glory is just not that important to me right now. Honoring you and honoring the majesty of your name, it's just, this sin is just a little more important than your glory right now. Zeal for the Lord manifests in holiness, manifests in evangelism and church discipline and apologetics. The last thing, what does it look like for you to be a zealous Christian, is what we call the spiritual disciplines. Do you make coming to church on Sundays a priority? Is the Lord more important than sports games? Is worshiping with a gathered body more important than all of the other things in the culture that would want to take your attention on a Sunday morning? Do you prioritize going to church if you don't? I would submit to you that maybe you are not zealous enough for the glory of God's church. How's your prayer life? When we come and we gather and we sing songs where we sing the gospel, we sing the goodness of God, we sing the victories of God, do you sing with conviction? Do you sing with your heart? Or do you mouth the words and go through the motions and wait till it's time to go get lunch? Zeal for the Lord causes us to passionately sing His glory and His wonder. He's been so good to us. Do you confess your sins? Do you study your Bible? Do you study other theological books to know more of God? We call these all these things the spiritual disciplines, and I believe that they reveal to us our zeal level in our hearts. These are the spiritual pulses that reveal how passionately we are pursuing the Lord, pursuing His glory. Now, it's easy for me to come in here and beat up on you, right? It's easy for me to say, hey, pray more and read your Bible more and evangelize more and do this and do that. But the question that's on all of our minds is, or maybe not a question, it's the phrase, yeah, easier said than done, right? If, if I could just flip a switch and become the Apostle Paul of evangelism tomorrow, I would flip that switch, right? If there was just a little knob in my heart that I could just up, turn up my zeal a little bit, yeah, there we go, there's the passion, There's the glory. We would do it. This is easier said than done, is it not? It's not automatic. And I would suggest to you that not only is it difficult because of our internal struggles, like we just, we are still fallen creatures even after regeneration. We still just don't love God as we ought to. But there is external pressure, even from within Christian camps, to tone it down. Uh, Read with me in verse 28. 1 Samuel 17, verse 28. This is interesting how David's oldest brother responds 
to his confidence and his zeal. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left the sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. David is the only person in all of Israel with a modicum of confidence. With a modicum of faith and trust that God will deliver us. And the second his faith and his zeal comes out of his mouth, he shot down. Oh, little David, I know why you're here. You're just blood. You just wanted to watch the action. Go back to the sheep. You know what I submit to you is happening? Conviction. It's convicting when the armies are trembling and the shepherd boy is the only one with an ounce of faith. He was convicted. And I would submit to you, maybe not within Redeemer Christian Fellowship, but you can often find yourselves in the context of a Christian community. And you can be zealous for true theology or zealous for apologetics or zealous for evangelism or zealous for holiness and you will be shot down. Do you want to know how often I have seen Christians who are striving for holiness called Pharisees? You're just a Pharisee, a legalist. You who would tell me I'm in sin. You Pharisee. Pursuing the glory of the Lord, obeying God, is not Pharisaical. You Pharisee, you heresy hunter, you cage stager. What are all of those phrases? Your zeal is convicting me. So shut up and go back to the sheep. Why is it so hard to be zealous? Because we don't want to be zealous and because quite often the people around us don't want us to be zealous. That's why it's hard. So how do we fix it? What steps can we take? Let me give you two in conclusion. The first one is everything I said in those applications of what zeal looks like, I believe there's a reciprocal relationship. It works both ways. So if you are super, super zealous for the glory of the Lord, you're going to evangelize and you're going to pray often. If you're not super, super zealous for the glory of the Lord, I believe you can still do those things and it will impact your zeal. I'll never forget the first time I ever went and did open-air preaching. I'm not calling all of you to do that. I'm not saying that's how God calls every individual Christian to evangelize. But I felt called to it. I went and did it. And my spiritual life was on fire after that. Evangelism created within me a glory for the Lord. It's amazing how often I've had Christians come to me and they're like on like a runner's high. And they're hyper. And I just, I just shared the gospel with somebody. It, it, it fills you up. So if you don't have enough zeal and you're not praying very often, you know what I would suggest you should do? Pray. Pray. Ask God to give you zeal. Ask him to help you. So just do all those things. And I believe it can work both ways. The zeal creates the disciplines, and I think the disciplines can help cultivate the zeal. So do those things. But let me give you the foundation to all of it. Again, this is not the quick, easy fix, the pill. But if you don't start here, all your efforts are gone. They're worthless. And this is this. We must begin to cultivate jealousy for God by first remembering that especially in the gospel, 
he is first jealous of us. You will never be able to cultivate jealousy for the glory of the Lord until you first see and take delight in the fact that he is jealous first for you. Why should you be jealous for God's glory? Why should you have a zeal for God's glory? Because he's jealous for you. Does that not stir our hearts? Nicknamed the Prince of Preachers, a man named Charles Spurgeon once preached a sermon called The Jealousy of God. And in it, he said this specifically about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, of whom I now speak, is very jealous of your love, O believer. Did he not choose you? He cannot bear that you should choose another. Did he not purchase you with his own blood? He cannot endure that you should think you are your own or that you belong to this world. He loved you with such a love that he could not stop in heaven without you. He would sooner die than you should perish. He stripped himself to nakedness that he might clothe you with beauty. He bowed his face to shame and spitting that he might lift yours to honor and glory. He cannot endure that you should love the world or the things of the world. You will never find your zeal for the Lord until you first know the Lord's zeal for you. So let us close with one more quote from that same sermon. Dear friends, let this jealousy, which should keep us near to Christ, be also a great comfort to us. For if we be married to Christ and he be jealous of us, depend upon it, this jealous husband will let no one touch his spouse. Will he not avenge his own elect who cry unto him day and night? There is not a hard word spoken, but the Lord shall avenge it. There is not a single deed done against us, but the strong hand of him who once died but now lives for us shall take terrible vengeance upon all his adversaries. I am not afraid for the church of God. I tremble not for the cause of God. Our jealous husband will never let his church be in danger. And if any smite her, he will give them double for every blow. The gates of hell shall not prevail against his church, but, he shall, but she shall prevail against the gates of hell. Her jealous husband shall roll away her shame. Her reproach shall be forgotten. Her glory shall be fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. For he that is jealous of himself is jealous for her fame. This subject is large and deep. Let us prove that we understand it by henceforth walking very carefully. And if any say, why are you so precise? Let this be our answer. I serve a jealous God.